Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you for your love. We praise you, Lord God, that you have enabled us to taste and see that you are good. We praise you, Lord God, for the blessings that you've given us, the blessings of life and health and talents and gifts, our families and friends, our congregations. We thank you, Lord God, that we can be your servants, your sons and daughters, your soldiers in your great army, your great worldwide family. And we rejoice that we can be found as part of your church, the church militant on earth, the church triumphant in heaven. We are one church with the believers of all ages, even those not yet born. And we praise the Lord God that we are united together in you by your blood given of one baptism, one loaf, one cup to drink. And we pray, Lord God, that you would focus our energies, our attentions upon you, so that you would receive all the praise, honor, and glory that you deserve. For we pray it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. I greet you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a joy to take part in your worship service. I must say, of all the different churches I attend, I find your worship, your singing, the whole structure of your service to be so thoroughly biblical and God-centered and absolute joy. It's a good example for us as we are trying church planting in Africa and seeking to find the most biblical, uh, the most God-honoring way and we've been particularly inspired by the Puritans. Head and heart, doctrine and devotion. A heart, a flame being presented to God as John Calvin said, promptly and sincerely in the service of my King. And, and that certainly is what we seek to do. If you would turn your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew chapter 25. Let us hear the word of the Lord as it's found in Matthew chapter 25, and starting in verse 31. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. Here we have, in the words of our Lord Jesus, a description of the day of judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then you will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. And you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, 
and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or naked or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of God. I'm a good person. I don't smoke. I don't drink alcohol. I don't do drugs. I don't steal. I don't swear. I'm not a homosexual. I'm a good person. Now often when you engage in street evangelism or door-to-door or other forms of personal evangelism, you'll come across these kinds of reactions. Most people are quite convinced that they are good people. I remember that your previous president, Bill Clinton, was once asked to describe himself and his description to a group of pastors was, I have a good heart. (laughs) Now that's the kind of response of an unregenerate person. It's amazing, before I was saved, I was convinced I was really a good person. After I saved, I realized I wasn't so good at all. And the further I read the Bible and the closer I came to the Lord, the more I realized, actually, I'm a sinful person. I'm depraved. I can't believe the wicked inclinations and mixed motives and horrible, horrible things in my own heart. And this is the amazing thing. Christians, when they're asked, will admit that they are sinful people. But the unregenerate will say that they're good people, even while engaged in some of the worst abominations on the planet. The Bible does not teach the goodness of men. I'm quite sad to see one of your presidents has on his grave, I believe that people are good. And what a, what a mindless, unbiblical thing to have on one's gravestone. One can only hope that someone else chose it and not him. The Bible does not teach innate goodness of man. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. There is no fear of God before the eyes. That is the description of man in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord Jesus, in the passage we've just read, describes the day of judgment, not so much in terms of the bad things you have done. You smoke, you drank, you chewed tobacco, you did drugs, you gambled. No. Bad as those things may be, The day of judgment is described in Matthew 25 by the Lord Jesus himself more in terms of the good things we fail to do. You see, many of us think of sins as sins of commission. But the Bible speaks of sins also as sins of omission. Failing to do good is also sin. James 4 and verse 17 states, To know the good that we ought to do and not to do it, that is sin. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Sin is failing to do good, first and foremost. In fact, the one Greek word used for sin is missing the mark. As an archer is aiming at the target and he misses the mark, he doesn't hit that center circle, that is sin. He has missed the mark. The mark before us is the Ten Commandments. You are to worship God alone. You are not to bow before idols. We are not to take the Lord's name in vain. We are to honour the Sabbath day. We must honour 
our father and our mother. We must not commit murder. We must not commit adultery. We must not steal. We must not lie. We must not covet. Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments as you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Sin is not just the bad things we do, but the good things we fail to do. Now I've found that there's quite a big difference between true guilt and false guilt. And the moment you start talking about guilt, many people today think of political guilt, national guilt, and there's a lot of guilt manipulation out there. One of the most meaningful books I ever read, which really started me on the path to the Reformed faith, was Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulation by David Chilton, as he exposed the guilt manipulation, which I recognized that I was very much part of. And how do we tell the difference between true guilt and false guilt? There's a lot of people willing to lay on you false guilt, even while excusing you from the true guilt. I had to deal with this issue recently in a debate on national radio in South Africa. As so often happens in cases like this, I had only a few hours warning and I didn't expect the explosive issues that they would be raising. They had asked me to discuss healing. So I pulled out some studies I'd done on bitterness, forgiveness, restitution and uh, I had those papers ready in front of the phone and waited for uh, the call to come through and when the radio program began I realised this wasn't an interview with me, this was a debate between myself and two church leaders who were determined to focus on political guilt. So, the healing they're talking about was national healing, not individual. had to put my papers aside. <laughs> to them there was only one issue, and that was apartheid. It was a bilingual debate. The two professors on the other side spoke in Afrikaans and I had to answer in English. So this was an interesting debate, because uh, we do this sometimes in radio in South Africa, that you might have a couple of different languages going around, so you just have to understand the nuances of what they're saying in your second language and answer in the other. Um, I don't know how many countries engage in that kind of bilingual debate, but we were into it. Well, these two professors claimed that all white South Africans were guilty of the sin of apartheid. I asked, how could that be, considering that most South Africans alive today hadn't even been born when the system had been introduced? Many whites had actually opposed apartheid. My family and the English liberal tradition had been vocal critics of the apartheid system. Not necessarily because we understood everything about it, but just by general rule of thumb, English-speaking South Africans were against everything the Afrikaans were for. So we just would oppose it just because it was government policy. This was part of our English heritage to oppose governments. And <laughs> we had never been for it. In Cape Town, which was mostly English-speaking, Cape Town had been dismantling apartheid from the 1970s. The South African Navy had abolished apartheid in 1974 and it started integrating. 1974. South African police started abolishing it in the mid-70s. The South African Army was abolishing apartheid when I was doing my military, 1980, uh, 1979 to 1981. In fact, in 1983, all South African whites went to the polls and voted to abolish apartheid. A vast majority of our people voted to abolish apartheid in 1983, three years before American Congress applied sanctions on us for it, even while it was almost dead at that stage. I pointed out that in the early 1980s I had chosen to study theology in a multiracial college, and for the last 25 years I've been dedicated to serving mostly black people throughout Africa, some of whom have been suffering some of the very worst persecutions in the world today. Considering that most of apartheid was abolished 23 years ago, 
and that most of the people living in South Africa today are under the age of 16, most have never even experienced it, nor could be responsible for it. Nevertheless, the, pan, the professor on the other side said, just as all Germans remain guilty for the crimes against the Jews in the Second World War, all South Africans, all South African whites, remain guilty of apartheid. Why, even the United Nations and the World Council of Churches had proclaimed apartheid a crime against humanity. And I was told, that is a very serious thing. So in response, I pointed out that the Second World War ended 62 years ago. Most of the people living in Germany today had not even been born. In fact, most of their parents hadn't even been born before the Second World War ended. There could be very few people alive today who had any significant role in any of the atrocities committed in the Second World War on any side. I asked if God was to speak to us today, would he bring up the sins of other people of decades ago, or would he confront us with our sins of today? It doesn't really matter what the United Nations or the World Council of Churches says. The question is, what does God say in the Bible? The fact is that the vast majority of governments represented at the United Nations are unelected, have no democratic mandate from the very people they purport to represent. In fact, most of the governments represented at the United Nations are guilty of heinous human rights abuses. Look at the Amnesty International reports on all the tortures perpetrated by the chairman and all the representative states on the Human Rights Commission. You might recall a few years ago that the UN removed the United States of America from the Human Rights Commission because of your abominable human rights record and placed Sudan as chair of the Human Rights Commission. And on the Human Rights Commission of the UN were others who weren't guilty of such terrible crimes as America. Countries like North Korea, Cuba and Red China who have exemplary records of human rights. The fact is the United Nations is the largest collection of unelected mass murderers in the world. As for the World Council of Churches, considering that the majority of its leaders are unregenerate reprobates who deny the authority of scripture who support abortions, why should we be concerned what their opinion on anything is? In the Bible, sin is very specific. It is a violation of the laws of God. That is what sin is. It's violating God's laws. Repentance in the Bible is also specific and it's personal. We are guilty when we disobey one of God's commands. Very simple. Sin is failing to worship God alone. Sin is making or worshipping an idol. Sin is taking God's name in vain. Sin is desecrating the Sabbath and failing to work six days, I might add. Sin is dishonoring our parents. Sin is taking innocent life. Sin is committing adultery and failing to respect the sanctity of marriage. Sin is stealing, including voting for political parties who steal from the voters by majority vote. Stealing. Huh, we could go into many things there. It includes not working when your boss isn't watching and you're taking the full salary at the end of the month. What would be more honest is if people at the end of the month said I didn't work 100% of the time so I don't deserve 100% of the salary that we agreed on. Um, I actually only deserve 60% of the salary. Here's 40% back. If that happened, what a testament it would be and quite a few employers might fall over with heart failure. <laughs> Sin is Bearing false witness, which your newspapers do all the time. And covetousness, which the entertainment industry and advertising industry seems dedicated to promoting. Covetousness. 
In the Bible, guilt and repentance are very specific, very personal, not vague, not national, not uh, something that you have this general guilt. And while I'm using South African examples, of course you can think of American examples. I think at the moment there's a whole lot of people who are getting all worked up about Columbus and uh, about uh, sins of America somehow, that America's done terrible things against these wonderful native people, the Indians who were all living in harmony and peace and democratic tranquility uh, and then the Christians came and ruined everything. And those who believe that should be forced to go and see Apocalypto and get a bit of an insight uh, from Mel Gibson's film there as to what life was like before the gospel arrived on the American continent. No, there's many things that people want to make you guilty of. In fact, there's people who must feel guilty of the slavery that ended 150 years ago, which 600,000 Americans died in the Civil War partly uh, in purpose of trying to end. And they want to make people feel guilty for things that your father, your grandfather and your great-grandfather weren't even involved in. They want Christians to repent and feel guilty for the Crusades. Even though the existence of Europe is in large measure thanks to the Crusades. They want to say that the Crusades committed terrible atrocities. They want to say that the Crusades started the whole hostility and the violence in the Middle East. In fact, none other than historical authority, Bill Clinton, has stated that the violence and the conflict in the Middle East started with the Crusades. The Crusades began 900 years ago, but Jihad began 14 centuries ago. The Crusades were only a belated reaction to five centuries of Islamic Jihad that destroyed 48,000 churches, annihilated 50% of all the Christians on the planet, eradicated Christianity in its heartland of the Middle East and North Africa, the lands of Tertullian and Oregon and Athanasius, the lands of Cyprian and Augustine, where the church had had its heartland, was eradicated, wiped out by the sword by Islam long before the Crusades began. The Crusades were only a reaction to Jihad. There is nowhere in the Bible that mentions the word Crusades, but the Quran is littered with over 90 passages dealing with Jihad. Jihad is a command in the Quran. In fact, when Muhammad was asked what is the greatest commandment, he didn't answer as Jesus did. He said to believe in Allah and in his apostle, and the second greatest command is to participate in Jihad. So, while Jesus said the second greatest command is to love your neighbor, Muhammad said the second greatest command is to kill your neighbor. And yet, there are people in your government who say that Christianity and Islam teach basically the same thing. Which makes you wonder why they aren't as friendly to Christianity as they are to Islam, if we teach the same thing, because they seem to fall over themselves to justify Islamic terrorists and jihadists, even while they condemn Christians and say children can't pray Christian prayers in schools you would have thought that we would at least be worthy of as positive a treatment as Islam if we are teaching the same thing. But they know we don't teach the same thing. They're being hypocrites. In the Bible, guilt is personal, not national. I cannot repent for the Crusades. First of all, I can't repent for the Crusades, not only because I wasn't involved, my great-grandfather wasn't involved, but because if I was alive in the time of the Crusades, I would have joyfully, enthusiastically taken part. And I think many of us would have too. The Crusades were a reaction and they were a defensive measure and they were taking back Christian lands from Muslim invaders and they were trying to defend the Greek Christians of the Byzantine Empire who had been annihilated by the Crusades. Many say the Crusades failed, but they didn't. 
they succeeded. The first crusade succeeded in winning Jerusalem and liberating it for a century. Secondly, the crusades bought Europe time, decades, centuries. It took the Muslims from the offensive and put them on the defensive. It saved Europe. If there hadn't been the crusades, there wouldn't have been a reformation. There wouldn't be a United States of America. It's that simple. No less authorities on the crusades than Professor Jonathan Riley Smith of Oxford and Professor Madden of Cambridge University, the two finest authorities on the crusades in the world who have dedicated their lives to studying it, have stated that basically the crusades saved Europe from becoming Eurabia. The crusades did not fail. The crusades won the centuries needed for Europe to survive and then have the Reformation, which strengthened it, to be able to resist the Ottoman Empire's attacks with the Battle of Lepanto, all the way through uh, to uh, defeats of the Muslims at Vienna, and throwing them back. And out of the Reformation in Europe, your country, the United States of America, was born, my country, South Africa, was born, the Gospel went throughout the whole world. To apologize for the Crusades is to apologize for the existence of the Christian faith, and to apologize for the existence of your country, and even of this church being a Protestant church, which could not have come about had there not been a Europe into which the Reformation was born, because Islam would have taken Europe long before if the Crusades had not been carried on for those two centuries. It was absolutely essential for the survival of Europe. But dumb, ignorant, half-witted, brainless Christians have gone on reconciliation walks all the way following the trails of the Crusaders, apologizing to the Turks, no less, who have been guilty of massacring one and a half million Christians just in 1915 alone, who have committed the most abominable atrocities against Christians throughout the centuries, and apologizing to Muslims engaged in a very act of jihad. To Muslims, this is not something that would make them respect us, but despise us. Winston Churchill said of the communists, but it's also true of the Muslims, there's nothing they respect more than strength, there's nothing they despise more than weakness. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to go and repent of the Crusades, nor to go and repent to Muslims. Obviously. Repentance has to be to God. Because our sin, first and foremost, is against God. And restitution must be made to the victim, entirely and directly. Not to the government, not to the United Nations. Restitution is not to be made to some vague third body or some international agency. Restitution is to be made to the victim. But today, they want us to have people who didn't do the crime paying restitution to people who weren't the victims. That is not the biblical concept of restitution at all. Our concern is this raking up of apartheid more than two decades after the majority of white South Africans voted against it and started to dismantle it is absolutely irrelevant. Long ago, all the essential components of apartheid was dismantled. Just as raking up slavery in the South in America 150 years after it was abolished is a bit pointless. All Columbus's activities 500 years later, even though he was a dedicated Christian who plainly had the glory of Christ and the freeing of the countries in the East from Islam as one of his goals of coming to America. He hoped that getting gold in America would enable him to finance a new crusade to free the Holy Lands from Islam. Just as Spain had just been freed from Islam in 1492 with the fall of Granada, the very year that Columbus was set out on his voyage of discovery. America's discoveries inextricably linked to the war against Islam. It was only the fall of Granada in 1492 in Spain that finished the liberation of Spain from 800 years of Islamic occupation that enabled Queen Isabella to send him out in the first place. And his goals were very much linked to freeing the rest of the Christian world 
from Islamic jihad and oppression. But a lot of these things are today forgotten. Biblically, true guilt is when I personally violate a specific command in Scripture. False guilt or psychological guilt is a result of selective focus, distortion of reality and especially ignorance of history. It is vague and it involves guilt manipulation. Now, when we repent of our personal guilt of violating God's commands, the result is forgiveness, freedom, healing and restoration. However, you can repent for false or psychological guilt every day of the week, every week in the month, every month of the year, every year of the decade. You'll never find freedom or forgiveness from false guilt because the devil's a very hard taskmaster. The devil will keep cracking his whip. It doesn't matter how often you repent for false guilt. There's no freedom. There's no forgiveness for false guilt. And that's why you Americans can apologize for the guilt of slavery, which people generations before your parents uh, might have been involved in. And you're not going to get any freedom. They don't care how many times you repent. You're still guilty. Whack. And the crack of the whip comes over your head. And the same with the Germans. It doesn't matter what the Germans do, how many billions of Deutschmarks they pump into Israel, and they've kept Israel afloat for uh, years and years, and no one knows about it. It doesn't matter. In fact, recently, they had the chief rabbi in Germany die, and they found that he had millions, upon hundreds of millions of Deutschmarks stashed away. He had been involved in a massive scam because the German government's been paying restitution to survivors of the concentration camps, which has grown from the one and a half million liberated by the Americans to 3,7 million survivors um, 60 odd years later. It's amazing how um, you can get more survivors of the year. You would have thought that they would have died out, but in fact they're increasing. And the chief rabbi was uh, collecting the restitution money for people who had long died and fictional people. There wasn't one newspaper or magazine in Germany, not even that scandal rag Der Spiegel, that even carried the story. They didn't dare. You could read about it in London, but you couldn't read about it in Berlin because the people in Germany are so crushed and hammered and pulverized under this false guilt that they dare not mention even a straightforward scandal of lies, theft and deceit uh, because if they did, somebody might accuse them of Nazism or uh, anti-Semitism. And so it doesn't matter what. In South Africa today, the bludgeon that they will use if you oppose abortion, if you oppose homosexuality, they accuse you of apartheid and racism. What's that got to do with anything? Nothing. But it doesn't matter. I'm sure they've got their tricks that they play on you as well. And they can throw the accusation. In South Africa, the R word, the racism word, will normally get most people to submit. It doesn't work with me because I've spent 25 years serving black people. Our mission is a multiracial mission dedicated to helping black people. I am not going to fall for that. It's not going to work on us, which is one reason why they hate us. But the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and that leads to repentance. But on the other side of that repentance is forgiveness, freedom, healing and restoration. But by way of contrast, the devil brings condemnation. The Holy Spirit brings conviction, the devil brings condemnation. And that condemnation is not to free us or bring us repentance. No. Condemnation from the devil is to enslave us and paralyze us into inactivity and into submission. That's how you can tell the difference between real guilt and false guilt. Real guilt is a specific breach of the Ten Commandments. False guilt is something vague. Real guilt brings conviction of sin leads to repentance. 
False guilt brings paralysis, inactivity, passivity, and it enslaves. My concern, which I related on this radio debate in South Africa, was that political forces are engaged in guilt manipulation, rewriting history, selective focus, distortion of reality, in order to bludgeon an entire people into compliance and submission to new racial quotas, to black economic empowerment, job reservations, extra rates and taxes, all of which are cover for corruption on a massive scale. We have enough real sins and genuine guilt of today to deal with without having to bring up the sins of other people of other generations of decades ago. The Bible says you shall not commit murder. Abortion is murder. Your government and my government are involved in murder. The southern government is responsible for the killing of 600,000 babies over the last 10 years. Nelson Mandela personally pushed through against the vast, huge opposition of most of the people in the country, even most of the members of parliament. He pushed it through, ramrodded it through, cracked the whip, forced his ANC members, even who opposed abortion. Even the Muslim and even the Catholic members of the ANC were forced to vote for abortion or they lost their seats in parliament. And he pushed it through. We've had over 2,000 white South African farmers murdered, tortured in the most excruciating ways in the last 13 years. An average of 20,000 South Africans are murdered every year. And you can add, over the last 13 years, you can add your own statistics for your own country. Have we been guilty of breaking the sixth commandment? That's something to repent for. The Bible says, you shall not commit adultery. Our present government not only legalized pornography and homosexuality, which had always been illegal, and legalized prostitution as well, but they're using our taxpayers' money to fund their love life campaign in our schools, which is basically teaching children to be fornicators and whoremongers. Rape and child abuse has increased in our country. Tens of thousands of families have been split apart by rampant divorce. Have we broken the seventh commandment? God says you shall not steal. We have a crime wave of housebreakings. Well, no wonder our government's released over 200,000 criminals over the last 10 years from jail long before their sentences have been abolished. In fact, to celebrate our president's 80th birthday, Nelson Mandela released a huge amount of criminals onto the streets, including murderers and rapists who were committing murder and rape even on senior citizen pensioners within 24 hours of their release. What a wonderful way to celebrate your birthday. We have a tidal wave of hijackings of cars, unprecedented corruption with all kinds of black economic empowerment, affirmative action scams, fraud, extortion, tearing the economic foundations of a country apart. Have we broken eighth command? The ninth command, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. But much of our state news media and our school textbooks bear false witness. They rewrite history. They glamorise mass murderers. You can get school textbooks for primary school in South Africa which glamorise such wonderful heroes as Vladimir Lenin, Mao Zedong, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara while vilifying Christians with false accusations. Just think of what your school textbooks do in America to people like Christopher Columbus. It is as Karl Marx declared. The first battlefield is the rewriting of history. Are they breaking the ninth command? God says you shall not covet your neighbour's goods. But greed and envy and malice and covetousness are officially sanctioned and promoted. Senior cabinet ministers have gone on record enthusiastically praising and supporting our neighbour, Marxist dictator Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe, who is engaged in a national suicide of state-sponsored terrorism, bulldozing and burning hundreds of churches, hundreds of thousands of homes, 
stolen over 5,000 productive commercial farms from white farm owners for no other reason than they were white. And destroying these farms, destroying what was the most efficient agricultural economy in the whole continent of Africa, which fed millions of people throughout the continent, provided most of the employment. They, employed, they were the biggest employers in the country. They provide most of the foreign exchange, most of the exports, and of course most of the food. Surprisingly, the country is in a state of total starvation, needing hundreds of millions of tons uh, export, imported in every month to survive after destroying their farms. But we have senior government officials in our country of South Africa enthusiastically supporting it and stating we should have similar confiscation of white farms in South Africa. We had 70,000 white farmers in South Africa in 1994. And they fed 100 million people throughout Africa. Not just our 40 million in South Africa, but way past our borders, as far afield as Nigeria, eating South African food. Now we have only 35,000 white farmers, half as many as we had at Mandela's takeover, because 2,000 white farmers have been murdered. Many others have fled because of this plain targeting of farmers. It's a new form of state confiscation of farms. But what about on a more personal level? Forget the national sins. What about a personal level? Are you personally guilty of theft? For example, if you're working in a business and you use the phone without permission, that's theft. Yeah, none of us would go and steal money out of a person's wallet or in, out of a safe, but would we run up phone bills without permission? That's theft. Would we take a full salary when we've only done part of the work? That's theft. What about greed? Are we guilty of greed and envy? What about gossip? This is a respectable sin in the church. Uh, we all engage in it at different times, but it's one that God puts right there along with all the malice and slander and the other evil sins. Gossip is a sin. Pride? Pride was the first sin that led Lucifer, the archangel, to fall and bring and become Satan and bring all uh, those third of the angels with him. What about envy? So much of the entertainment media and the news media and the advertising media is designed to create in us envy, covetousness. What about malice and selfishness? Selfishness is the root sin. The middle letter of sin is I. The middle letter of pride is I. The middle letter of Lucifer is I. I is at the root of all sin. Me, myself and I. Selfishness. What about bitterness? Am I guilty of bitterness and unforgiveness? I suspect that a lot of the people who are trying to put a guilt manipulation trip on us for supposed sins of previous generations, that they are consumed by bitterness and malice and unforgiveness. And we need to minister to them because I don't think many of them actually know the Lord or have experienced his forgiveness at all. If God was speaking to you today, what sins would he bring up? Would he confront you with sins of other people of other generations? Or would he confront you with specific violations of the Ten Commands in your life? God wouldn't bring up other people's sins to you and I. He'd deal with what you and I are personally responsible of and guilty of. The lusts of the eyes. The pride of life. And the lusts of the flesh. We have enough sins of our own that we're personally guilty of without wasting our time following the political agenda of guilt manipulators who are seeking to get rich of other people's misfortune. At at the end of the radio debate, the interviewer asked me what I believe to be the solution to the guilt of apartheid and what need for reconciliation and restitution did I believe in. And I said, we need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we need to repent of our sins and we need to do restitution for those sins that we are personally responsible for to the people that we have violated. And we need to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and with all our strength. And we need to love our neighbour as ourselves. That is God's priority. What are we doing bringing up all kinds of false guilt? If I was to ask you, what is the greatest sin anyone could ever commit? What would you answer? Would you say murder? Idolatry? Adultery? Perversion? Hatred? Blasphemy? When the Lord Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He answered, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you are to love your neighbours yourself. If this is the greatest commandment, it follows then that the greatest sin would be to fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. Failure to love God is the root sin that leads to all other sins. I cannot love my neighbour unless I first love God. God deserves a wholehearted love, not with some of, most of, all of our heart. Nothing less than all that we have is good enough for Almighty God. He is worthy. The Lamb who has slain is worthy to receive all power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. The scripture teaches that our love should be more than just words and talk. It must be true love which shows itself in action. Jesus showed us his love by dying for us while we were still sinners. Jesus showed us that true love is measured by sacrifice. You can tell what's important to us by how much we put our time and effort and energy into. Love gives and rejoices in giving. Love does not count the cost. Love wants to give, not out of duty, but out of a glad and a willing heart. Love entails intense enthusiasm, a longing to be near, a desire to serve. Does that describe our love for God? Do you know your Bible? Do you study it intently? Do you seek to apply it to every area of life? Do you know what God wants you to do? Are you doing it wholeheartedly? A blacksmith keeps his iron in the fire long enough for the fire to get into the iron. That's when it starts to turn white hot. Are we so immersed in God's word, the Bible, that his presence, his fire, is burning within our hearts? As Calvin's emblem, a heart aflame in the hand of God. Love is like a fire. It spreads easily, but it continually needs more fuel to keep it spreading. Our love for God feeds by faith in his word. It feeds in worship. It feeds in prayer, in praise and adoration. Love is like life. It grows if you feed it and it dies if you starve it. Are we feeding our love for God or are we starving it? Let me seek you in longing and long for you in seeking. Let me find you in love and love you in finding. That was a, Middle that was a medieval prayer by Anselm. The Ten Commands are not only a list of prohibitions, they're a list of positive actions. The Ten Commands teach us respect for God, respect for people, respect for parents, respect for property. Even praying the Lord's Prayer demands action. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Jesus taught, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The Lord taught us that our Christianity is not just to be words and talk, not just to be what we say, but what we do. Our actions. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, our Lord said in Luke eleven twenty-eight. We are commanded to be doers of the word, 
Not here as only deceiving ourselves, warns James. The church today suffers from an abundance of Christians who know far more than they practice. We know a lot in the head. We don't feel that much in the heart and we do precious little with our hands. We deceive ourselves if we believe that true Christianity involves merely going to church and avoiding cigarettes and drunkenness and drugs and swearing and other visible, audible examples of sin. I mean, there are extreme examples of sin, but avoiding that is not enough if we're missing the mark of loving God wholeheartedly and serving our neighbor as ourselves. Because we are saved to serve. At creation, the Lord issued the cultural mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to care for his creation. We are commanded to raise our children in the love and the fear of the Lord. According to the golden rule of Christ, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. That's what we must be doing. The scripture teaches us to do far more than merely to avoid evil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands that which is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. As Christians, we commanded to learn to devote ourselves to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. The Lord rebuked the idol. The Lord Jesus said, Why have you been standing here idle all day? In Matthew 26. So idleness is a sin. The Lord wants eager volunteers. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I've been interested. We have all been praying for Dr. James Kennedy recently because he's been um, laid aside through that heart attack just after Christmas. When I first met James Kennedy, I had heard that he always went out every Thursday night door to door doing personal evangelism in Fort Lauderdale. In fact, I'd heard that he wouldn't even accept invitations on Thursdays because he'd always want to be back on Thursday and it's a very rare time in his ministry that he hasn't been involved in door-to-door on Thursday nights back in his home parish. So I challenged him. I said, I hear that you're still involved uh, every week in door-to-door evangelism. I'm surprised, considering all your radio, TV, writing ministry, that uh, you have time for this. I suppose I was being a bit provocative, but boy, did I give him a reaction. He turned around with such intensity. He said, Peter, that is the most important thing I do. He said, all these ministries around me, he said, they're not going to last much beyond my death. He says, but the one-on-one evangelism, the discipleship, the training evangelists, he said, that is going to count for eternity. That's the most important thing I do. That's interesting. Perhaps you thought there's nothing particularly important you could do. Nothing as important as high-profile ministers. But I've found many prominent ministers who think that the one-on-one person evangelism that they do is more important than all of the big authoring radio, TV and other things. Do you know Dale Moody, one of the great American evangelists of the 19th century, he preached to very, very large crowds, some of the biggest crowds in America and England, but he didn't consider his day complete unless he had engaged in one-on-one personal evangelism. He never went to bed without witnessing to one person that day. He made that an undertaking. And there's some funny stories of Dale Moody in his bathrobe wandering around the streets in London um, trying to find someone just before midnight because he'd got to bed and realised, ah, I haven't spoken. He might have spoken to a big crowd, but that didn't count. Stadiums didn't count. He had to engage in one-on-one evangelism to someone he hadn't witnessed to before. How interesting that many people who come to our Great Commission courses, I asked them on a questionnaire at the beginning, have you ever led someone to Christ? Most people who've come to our course have answered no. And I've been told by other people that that's actually pretty true. Most people in our churches have not engaged in personal one-on-one evangelism. 
at the end of our courses we have another questionnaire asking highlights and so on and most people will respond that the highlight of the course was engaging in one-on-one personal evangelism on the streets or other kind of evangelism we had and uh, being able to lead someone to Christ for the first time. You know, most Christians are absolutely terrified of witnessing, yet when they try it, they are amazed by how open and hungry many people are, how prepared much of the people are for the gospel. The, the fields are white into harvest and we seldom realise it. The last command of our Lord Jesus Christ should be our first concern. The Great Commission must be our supreme ambition, and that is to make disciples, to teach obedience to all things that the Lord has commanded. As Christians, we must recognise that passivity is a sin. Neutrality and inactivity are sinful disobedience. When God speaks and we don't listen, when the Bible teaches and we don't obey, what Jesus commands, we don't obey and apply. Where God sends and we don't go. We stay seated when we should stand up. We keep silent when we should speak out. We stand back when we should step out in faith. We remain at home when we should be going at the highways and byways. We are Christians. We are people with a message of life and death. Let us wake up to the urgency of a lost world, damned and heading to hell. Lives at stake. There are other sheep of this pasture that we must bring. They will hear his voice. The truth is under attack. God's name is being blasphemed and he's not being given the honour he deserves. One of the very best sermon illustrations that all of us can give is the daily testimony of a Christian doing his work with integrity and with diligence. The quality of a daily work should testify to our faith in Christ. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Those who want to do God's will, this is God's will. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is God's will that you and I be joyful, prayerful and thankful. That we care for God's creation. That's the cultural mandate. That we be thoughtful and considerate. That we do to others only what we would want them to do to us. That we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And that we love our neighbours ourselves. Then we are applying the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life. Then we are making disciples and teaching obedience to all things the Lord has commanded. True Christianity is not just seen in what we say, but in what we do. It's spiritually refreshing to step out in faith. So let us put feet to our faith. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and who obey it. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we thank and praise you for your word, and we pray, Lord God, that you'd have mercy upon us, that you'd help us to apply your word with diligence. We ask, Lord God, that you'd protect us not only from the sins of commission, but the sins of omission. Help us, Lord God, to know the good that we ought to do and to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.